And Lord, as we now come to Your Word, we remember, O Lord, that Your Word is sufficient. That it contains everything that we need to know about life and salvation. Everything we need to know about You. Everything we need to know about ourselves. And we pray, O Lord, that You would, by the power of Your Spirit, apply the truths of this psalm to us, to Your people. That it would not only grow us in our faithfulness and our understanding, but in our love and devotion for Christ as well. Oh Lord, use this time to sanctify Your people for Christ's glory. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 44. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles out in the foyer on the counter. Feel free to, uh, to get one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one. We're happy to provide those for you. But we're going to be looking at Psalm 44 today as we continue our study in the Psalms, which we do on the first Sunday of every month. Uh, the rest of the month, of course, we'll be in the Gospel of John. But today we'll be looking at Psalm 44, which is yet another one of these psalms. It's a psalm of lament, uh, similar to the ones we looked at last month. But once again, this is, this is like free therapy. Uh, this is like a counseling session. It's cathartic for us to go through the psalms because the psalms wrestle with some very tough questions. And not only do they wrestle with the same tough questions that you and I wrestle with, but they instruct us in not only how we should think, but also in how we should respond to doubts and to tough questions that leave us feeling uh, like we have no idea which way to turn. So today we'll be looking at Psalm 44. Have you ever looked around at the world, and maybe you've done this recently especially, have you ever looked around at the world, or maybe you've faced a a really difficult circumstance that that felt like just a mountain, and you weren't sure how you were going to climb it, and as you're looking at the world, or you're looking at this circumstance, have you wondered if God is asleep at the wheel? A little bit over a month ago, back in February, Christina and I decided to pay a visit to my parents who, uh, as many of you know, live in Las Vegas, Nevada. But flying from Seattle to Las Vegas takes roughly two and a half to three hours, which is not a big deal, but with COVID regulations and getting to the airport at least two hours early, the idea of wearing a face mask for at least five hours straight just didn't appeal to either one of us, so we drove. Now, some of you know, you saw on Facebook, or, or we've talked about it, you know the story of how we got diverted by Google Maps and how that actually turned out to be a major blessing for us and may, may have even saved our lives. But perhaps the most frightening moment of the trip came about 50 miles south of the Idaho state line, Uh, on the drive back up. As we were coming up on a bend to our left, there was a semi driving in the opposite direction, which was drifting rather quickly into our lane. He was supposed to be bending to his right, but he was actually just going straight ahead instead of uh, turning, as in straight ahead right into us. Uh, And this is on a two-lane road that is just hundreds of miles long. With Less than a hundred yards to go, uh, he was more than halfway into our lane. 
Now, there was no shoulder to drive onto, and not a lot of time to react. The only thing I could do was slam on the brakes and, and try, to, try to navigate, try to steer us to the edge of the road. Uh, as I literally had about one second to consider all of our options, uh, which came down to either going head-on with a semi or driving off the road and probably flipping the car a few times, uh, I concluded that we had about zero chance of surviving a head-on collision with, uh, with a semi. And we had a better chance of surviving if we risked driving off the road and flipping the car a few times. Uh, that's, that's what came to mind within about one second. Thankfully, he did wake up and uh, tried to pull into his lane uh, before he hit us. Uh, I don't think he uh, completely got over before we reached him, but thankfully our car was small enough and I had steered us far enough over to the right uh, that we we missed him. Uh, Let me just tell you, the surge of adrenaline there was pretty intense. Um, I'm sure it was for him too. Uh, Probably woke him up a little bit, but the reality is that the drive through southern Idaho and almost all of Nevada is just pretty boring. Uh, it, it's easy to, uh, to get distracted. It's easy to fall asleep. And for semi-drivers, given how long they drive, uh, they really face the danger of falling asleep at the wheel more than anyone else. Uh, I've looked up some statistics. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration uh, reveals that there were at least 91,000 crashes involving drowsy driving in 2017. 91,000. There were almost 800 fatalities. Just by virtue of the nature of truck driving, especially for long-haul drivers, uh, they are obviously more prone to falling asleep at the wheel than others. But the idea of somebody who's driving an 80,000-pound big rig falling asleep at the wheel... Uh, that's, that's pretty scary. That's a recipe for disaster. And we actually came extremely close, too close for comfort, to being a casualty of uh, those statistics. But let me ask you again. Have you ever looked at the world or have you ever faced a circumstance in your life that felt like that? That felt like God was asleep at the wheel? I, I think that we, we, we should know better, right? While we should know better, we, we may know better, there is still, even though we may know it intellectually, there's still an inclination within us to at least feel like that sometimes. Now, good theology, biblical theology, teaches us otherwise. We know this intellectually. We know on an intellectual level that God is sovereign over all things, right? We know that. God is sovereign over everything. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things after the counsel of His will. It doesn't say that He works a few things after the counsel of His will. It doesn't say He works some things after the counsel of His will. Not even most things. He works all things after the counsel of His will. That means He is in control of all things at all times. And if we have a biblical understanding of life and creation, this doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things, His involvement in every single thing that happens, big things and small things alike, is what we find at the very foundation of a biblical worldview. Now, we may know this to be true, but that doesn't change the fact that our feelings are still so prone to lie to us and to deceive us. Because it doesn't always look and it doesn't always feel like God is 
in control of things. It doesn't always look and feel like He's sovereign. Sometimes it looks, sometimes it it feels like God's asleep at the wheel. And the truth is that God's people throughout history have always felt like that from time to time. Maybe you've thought to yourself, if God is sovereign, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why am I suffering? Why, Why this? Why that? One of the reasons that I have just loved preaching the Psalms so much is because the psalmists are so honest with us. They wrestle with real questions like this. And they give us answers, and they show us how to think and how to respond. So today we come to Psalm 44. It's another psalm of lament, uh, as were the previous two, which we studied last month. Uh, And at one point, we see the psalmist here in Psalm 44 pleading with God, Why do you sleep, O Lord? Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and oppression? Do you see what he's wrestling with? I I, I am sure that they didn't have any kind of steering wheel back then, but I'm also sure that if this psalmist were alive today, that he would have asked, is God asleep at the wheel? Maybe you've even asked that question yourself. Look at how quickly... The chaos around the world has just accelerated over the past two years. Why does it look like evil is winning the day? Why does it look like evil, uh, evil people and evil powers are gaining momentum so quickly? And why does it look like they're prospering so easily? Is God asleep at the wheel? Here's the short answer. No. <laughs> Never. God isn't like us. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't grow weary. So then the question is this. What are, what are we supposed to do when it, when it looks like God is asleep at the wheel? What, what are we supposed to do when it feels like God isn't doing anything when we think He should be based on His character? And, and this is where the psalm becomes instructive for us. So the point of this psalm is, first of all, that God never sleeps. He is constantly awake, constantly aware of everything going on in the world, from the biggest things down to the nanomolecular level. He's aware of everything. Everything that happens is an expression of His sovereign will that He established before the foundation of the world according to the counsel of His will. Everything. Therefore, we must not lose hope. We must hope in God rather than in our understanding of what's taking place in the world or in our lives. Now, we don't know who the author of this psalm was exactly. Uh, We only know that it was uh, the sons of Korah from the sons of Korah. Further, we don't know exactly why it was written. We don't know what the circumstances were uh, that led to this psalm being written, uh, nor do we know when this psalm was written. So whoever wrote it, whenever he wrote it, why he wrote it, whatever, what's clear is that he's feeling like God is asleep at the wheel. And so he recalls how God has saved his people in the past, but he can't understand why God isn't doing anything in the present as he writes this. So the psalm begins with a recollection of the past, starting with the distant past in verses 1-3. to It says, For the choir director, a maskil of the sons of Korah, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. 
You with your own hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them around. For by their own sword they did not possess the land. And their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence. For you favored them. God has a long, long history of being unswervingly faithful to His people. In fact, He's never been unfaithful for one second in one instance to His people. What God has promised, He has always delivered. One of those times came when God delivered the Hebrew people from slavery to the Egyptians and He brought them to the land of Canaan, the the, the promised land. That land was occupied, however. And the Hebrew people had only known a life of slavery. The Hebrew people had been in Egypt for 400 years. They only knew how to be slaves. They were in no way prepared for a military conquest going into this land against the people who had been at war with each other and <coughs> who knew how, <coughs> excuse me, who knew how to how to fight, who knew how to go to war. But God's people didn't need to be prepared for battle because it was God himself who crushed their enemies and cleared the land for them. When Pharaoh and his army were in hot pursuit of, of the Hebrews, they complained to Moses at one point saying, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And what does Moses say in response to them? He says back to them, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation which the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. So the Lord didn't arm them. He didn't give them a set of instructions for how they should prepare to go into battle. Instead, what He tells them to do through Moses is to just stand still and watch. Just stay quiet. Just stand there and see the victory that God is going to give them. And so in this way, God saved His people by His grace alone. Of course, this is the parting of the Red Sea. He saved His people by grace alone and received all the praise. He received all the glory for it. And the Israelites reaped the blessing of freedom from their enemies. And the same was true when they went into the land. God instructed them to do something so simple and so silly, you would think this can't possibly be true. And from a naturalistic perspective, it obviously wouldn't work. But God instructed them to surround the walls of Jericho and blow their trumpets for seven days. And then for all the people to shout with the trumpets on the seventh day, and the walls of Jericho would come down crumbling flat. And that's exactly what happened. So these stories of Israel being delivered, of Israel experiencing victory over their enemies by the hand of their invisible captain, these are all recorded in sacred Scripture, but also the fathers uh, for generations would teach their children of these stories of what the Lord had done, how He had won the victory for His people. And this would be passed down for countless generations to come. These are things that happened in the very, very distant past. 
But the psalmist now moves from the distant past to the more recent past, recalling how God continued to go to battle for His people in the more recent past. Uh, As we continue looking at verses 4-8, to he writes, You are my King, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Now Selah means stop and think about it. Just wait a second before you keep going. Think about what, what he's just said. So from the, from the distant past to the more recent past, God continued to bless, sustain, and provide for his people. One example would be Elijah calling down fire right from heaven uh, on a wet sacrifice. Like how could, that, how could that possibly happen? And of course, that was one way that God delivered them more, more recently. His faithfulness continued uh, in, the, in the more recent past. Uh, his faithfulness was, was evident. And the enemies of Israel even feared the fierce hand of Israel, uh, Israel's God, who continued to push back their adversaries and to strike down anyone and everyone who tried to rise up against His people. And for this reason, the people of God learned not to trust in their bows, learned not to trust in their swords, but to trust in the Lord, to to love and to fear and to serve and to trust God instead. As a result of what God continued to do in their midst, the people of God continued to boast in what God was doing. They weren't boasting in and of themselves, rather they were giving thanks to God. Now, as you think of what we've seen so far in this psalm, and as you think of this theme of remembering uh, the way that God has worked in the, in the distant past and the more recent past, if you want to apply this to ourselves, maybe you think of uh, a time like the Reformation uh, and the work that God did a little over 500 years ago to bring His people back to His Word. And we thank God and we praise God for what He did in the Protestant Reformation, how He set us free from bondage to man's wicked uh, and deceitful traditions and ideologies and philosophies. Not that traditions and philosophies are necessarily bad. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. We have to weigh them against Scripture, right? But regardless, uh, no tradition and no ideology and no philosophy is ever on par with Scripture in terms of the authority that it has. Scripture stands above everything else. There is nothing else, no ideology, no tradition, no philosophy that even comes close in terms of the authority that it has. We thank God that we have a clear understanding of this because of what happened in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, that we now have a clear understanding of the supremacy of God's Word over our lives. Praise the Lord for that. But up until this point in the psalm, you might be thinking, okay, that's great. Uh, It sounds like everything is good. Uh, Life is is going smoothly. This is a psalm of sheer praise for what God has done. There's nothing to lament here. This isn't a psalm of lament, uh, but it's at this point that the psalm completely changes direction from the way that it was going to the present. 
the sons of Korah and the people of God continue to praise God for what He's done in the past. They continue to thank Him for what He's done in the past, but they're suffering some type of affliction as a whole in the present. It looks from their perspective, and it feels from their perspective like God has just fallen asleep at the wheel. That's what we see as we continue looking at verses 9-16. to He continues writing, Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as a sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. So this is moving now into the present. And that's introduced with this word, yet. Uh, the Hebrew word is, uh, is also commonly translated as, as but. It's, it's a word that shows a, a contrast, a change of direction. Uh, in the NIV, that's actually how this verse is translated. In the NIV, it says, but now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. Uh, similarly, the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, says, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our enemies. So there's a contrast here. Things were going one direction, but now things are going a different direction. And what's interesting about this contrast and the, the presence of this, this word showing the contrast here is that so many passages uh, in Scripture uh, have this word preceding the actions of God. For example, my favorite use of uh, the word but in all of Scripture uh, is in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul is talking about how we were dead in our sins, about how we were following uh, the world and the flesh and the devil. And then we read, starting with verse 4 in Ephesians 2, but God, contrast, change of direction, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So there's a contrast that takes place. That we were destined for hell. That we were following the flesh, following the world, following the devil, straight to hell. But God did something about it. And so the direction that we were taking changed. Another wonderful place where we find this, this word, this type of contrast, is Romans 3.21. Up until that point in Romans chapter 3, we read only of the universal condemnation of all of humanity apart from God's grace. Our condemnation reaches a pinnacle in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where we're told, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Not even one. No flesh will be justified through the works of the law in His sight. Now, if you just stopped reading the text right there, you'd think, oh no, 
We're, we're doomed. You know, we've all sinned. We've all uh, violated God's law. None of us is good. None of us is righteous. Not a single one of us has lived up to what God requires for a person to receive salvation. Not even one. And if the book of Romans ended right there, you'd be right. That would be the conclusion. We'd all be doomed. But we read in verse 21, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Total contrast. We're all condemned, but there's hope. In Christ. So the typical pattern that we see in Scripture is this that it shows us how, you know, how, how sad, how pathetic, how lost our condition is, only, being, uh, only to be contrasted with the hope that we have in God, uh, starting with the word but. But that's not what we see in this psalm. Actually, what we see here is exactly the opposite it moves from God's faithfulness to what looks and feels like God is being inactive and doing nothing to save or protect or sustain His people. So it moves from happy to sad, rather than from sad to blessed. The word that keeps being repeated over and over in this section from verses 9 to 16 is the word you. You, the psalmist laments, you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. And you do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. You give us as sheep to be eaten. And you have scattered us among the nations. You, 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 you. Throughout this section. Do you see how this is the pattern that we are seeing here throughout this section? Now, here's where we had better make sure that we uh, buckle our seatbelts and brace ourselves for an incoming truth grenade. Ready? He's right. He's right. Everything that he said is true. He's not wrong. In a very real sense, he is just telling it like it is. Could God have prevented all these things that he's listing out? Could God have prevented those things from happening? If God's sovereign, and he is, the answer is yes, he could have. God could have prevented some of these things from happening, or He could have prevented all of these things from happening. He could have prevented the enemies of His people from afflicting His people and gaining the upper hand. So, in a very, very real sense, God is not only behind all the victories that they have rejoiced over for generations, but He's also behind their current afflictions. If He hasn't caused them directly... He's at least allowed them to happen. James Montgomery Boyce writes this. He says, This is what makes the problem so puzzling. A mere accident is not puzzling. A disaster is only puzzling if God is in control, is favorable to us, and lets it happen anyway. End quote. In other words, if God is not sovereign over all things, if He has not ordained everything that comes to pass, then we don't have a problem here. 
and there's nothing to lament. It's just the way it is. It's just life. You can't complain to God. That's just the way it is. It's the fact that God is sovereign that creates the dilemma. It's the fact that God is sovereign and that He has ordained all things that come to pass that makes this so confusing for the psalmist and for us and for you and me. You know, Whenever we might find ourselves wondering if God is, so to speak, asleep at the wheel. The unbeliever has no explanation for this and, and nothing to even think about this. No coherent explanation for why things shouldn't go wrong nor for why they should go right. I mean, what, what I mean is, you know, if you're just a common pagan who claims not to believe in the one true living God who's sovereign over all things and who ordains everything that comes to pass, you have nothing to complain about when things go wrong. You have no explanation for why things shouldn't go some way or another if nobody's at the wheel and if everything at the universe just in the universe just happens because of chance, because of accident, because chaos just sometimes works out that way. You have no reason to even say that what you're experiencing is bad in any sense because somebody else might say, hey, what you're experiencing is actually good. Who's to say? By what standard is it bad? The secularist just has nowhere to run or hide when it comes to this issue. He can't say that God is being good or bad at any time because he has no moral basis that's objective. Everything is just his perception. And even he has to acknowledge that his perception is often wrong. That's why we learn. So the secularist has no place to run and nowhere to hide on this. But for the Christian, let me just say this. We're not always going to understand why God is doing what He's doing. We're not always going to understand why God causes certain things or why God allows certain things. We're, we're just not. We, we can't know God's mind and he can't, he can't put all of you know, history in a book. I, I mean, that would be way too big for us to read. We'd never get around to the present. We'd be so busy reading about the past. We can't know God's mind. He's infinite. We're finite. The finite can never wrap around the infinite. All we can know is what God has revealed, and everything that He's revealed to us is found in the pages of sacred Scripture. Everything that we can know about God and His will is in His Word. Well, His Word doesn't give us specific answers for every single trouble we face. For example, uh, if you're asking, you know, why did, uh, why did I lose so much money in the stock market this week? Why did God allow that to happen? I mean, there are a lot of possible answers that you could derive from Scripture, but it doesn't address that specific instance when it might be something as silly as, well, you know, uh, there was some trader that decided to trade your stock, a whole bunch of it, and your stock went down. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us an answer to things like, why did this person, why did God allow this person to hit my car? I mean, the laws of physics uh, could be one, but I mean, we don't have a specific answer for all these things in life. But as Christians, here's what we must learn to do. All we can do is, number one, remember that God does ordain all things that come to pass. Secondly, Remember that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. All things. 
God is causing all things, including your afflictions, to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And third, wait. Wait. Wait to understand how whatever affliction or whatever circumstance you're facing will ultimately work for your good, knowing that you might not get answers in this life, but that God is still good even when we are left without answers. And God is still faithful to His promises even when we don't understand. One day, either in this life or in glory, we will understand. We will understand. Now some might say, you know, looking at this situation that the psalmist is describing, maybe God's punishing them. And actually that's a better explanation, right? That's, that's a far better idea than that God is just asleep at the wheel uh, because it still recognizes that God is alert and that He's sovereign over all things and that He hates sin. But if we think about this idea that God is just punishing His people, if we think about that a little bit further, I think we'll see that this idea that we're suffering uh, from some type of affliction because God is punishing His people is really some terrible theology family really some terrible theology and yet this is one of the things that in the flesh we're so inclined to do whenever we suffer whenever we're undergoing an affliction whenever things go wrong we start wondering if we're suffering because god is mad at us and punishing us let me tell you what this is you know those guys on tv that uh that peddle a false gospel we call it prosperity theology That's what that kind of thinking is at the root. It's the belief that if we only had more faith or faithfulness, that we wouldn't be afflicted. Uh, That's the same theology, by the way, that Job's friends had. They They were convinced that Job was suffering, that Job was afflicted because he had sinned in some way. He just wasn't telling them, but God knew, and he knew. He just needed to confess it and forsake his sin, and, and God wouldn't punish him anymore. God wouldn't afflict him anymore. God wouldn't allow him to, uh, to, to have to go through this circumstance. In other words, they believed that God was punishing Job. But the book of Job, if, if there's nowhere else in Scripture that clearly demonstrates this, the book of Job clearly demonstrates that that was not the case, that God was not punishing Job in any way. Rather, Job was suffering not because he was unrighteous in God's sight, but because he was righteous in God's sight. So let's be clear about this. God does discipline His children. There's no question about that. And we thank Him for being a God and Father who loves us enough that He would discipline us. But He doesn't punish us. He doesn't punish us. If He has to punish us, I want you to think about this with me for a second. If He has to punish us, it means that Jesus didn't bear all of our sin and shame on the cross. It implies that Jesus' work was insufficient to reconcile us completely to God and that we have to suffer a little bit of His wrath, a little bit of God's wrath too. Because what Jesus did was insufficient. Perish the thought. Perish the thought. Dig Dig a hole for that one and bury it as deep as you can. It means that there is still a debt for sin that remains on our shoulders even after Christ's substitutionary and propitiatory work of reconciling us to God. If you're wondering 
If God is punishing you with some type of situation or some type of affliction, let me just encourage you to pick your theology up out of the sewer and clean it off. Because that is not what God does, and it is dangerously wrong to think that that's the way that God acts toward us. We can be certain that God is not punishing His people here in this psalm. Although He may be, and probably is, disciplining them. In fact, based on what we can gather from this psalm, the Israelites were actually faithfully worshiping and serving God. Let's continue. Verses 17-21. to All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For He knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake we are being... Let's stop there. Let's stop there. Verse 21. What we see here in, in this passage is that as the psalmist is confronted with the circumstances that the nation of Israel, Jacob, is facing here, it becomes apparent that he's thinking and searching desperately for answers. It doesn't make any sense to him, but he's thinking in his mind, there's got to be a reasonable explanation for this. And he's trying to find it. So it's not that God is absent. We've already covered that. It's not that He was punishing them. We've already covered that too. It's also clearly not that the people of God were acting in disobedience, and so God was handing them over to their sins. That would make sense to the psalmist. Do you see what he says? If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, then it would make sense. But that's not what's happening. And so it doesn't make sense. In fact, he knows that it would make sense. That's what, that's what happened throughout the book of Judges, right? God would rescue his people. They'd return to him, but only for a time. And then they would fall away once again from God. And God would again hand them over to their sins and to the people of the land to discipline them. But that's not what's happening here. These verses, this psalm as a whole, makes it very clear that instead of being unfaithful to God, His people were actually serving Him very faithfully here. So once again, the psalmist wouldn't be puzzled by the circumstances the people are facing if that had been the case, if they, were, if they had been unfaithful. He could have just simply said, okay, I get it. You know, we, we see this pattern in God's Word. God is disciplining us for our unfaithfulness as a means of drawing us ultimately back to Himself. But the psalmist is confident that if God were disciplining them, He would have made known the reason why. So that they could repent and return to Him and escape their affliction. When he says, would God not find this out? What he's basically saying is, wouldn't God know this and, and, and reveal it? Wouldn't He reveal it to us? In other words, God never disciplines us so blindly that we aren't sure exactly what He's disciplining us for or what sin He's trying to break us free from. Further, we can't conclude that God's people were in some way acting unfaithfully because of the way that Paul actually quotes this verse and uses this phrase from the next verse, verse 22, where he writes, But for your sake we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes that verse in Romans chapter 8 when he's making the point that nothing, nothing in all of creation 
can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes. He says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 37. He says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But, he writes, here's that contrast, here's that word again, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. In other words, God is telling us through Paul's pen that the people of God are sometimes afflicted, that they sometimes suffer even when they are doing everything right. Though man may assail us, what God wants us to see here is that He will never assail us, that He will never forsake us or abandon us, that He will always keep us, that none will snatch us from His hand. We are more than conquerors through Christ our Lord. Even if we should be killed, we are still conquerors. Paul goes on to say this. He says, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. The list could have gone on and on, but Paul was probably thinking, I, you know, I, I better preserve my ink. None of these things, he says, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, why is the psalmist along with the people of God, why is God allowing them to suffer? Is He going to tell us? Is is the psalmist going to reveal exactly why God would do this? The answer is no. He's not. He can't find an explanation beyond... Look what he says here and what he says. Paul quotes it too. For your sake. For your sake. God has allowed it to happen. It's within His sovereign will for it to happen. And He's not given an answer beyond that other than for your sake. And that's okay. And you and I, friends, we have to be okay with that too. Because there will be times in our lives too in which we suffer or in which we're afflicted in some way. And we might not understand at all why God would have allowed it to happen. If God is all-powerful and all-good, why, why would He have allowed this or that to happen? We might not know. We might not know. So th- this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. So what are we supposed to do when that happens? What are we supposed to do when it looks and feels like God is asleep at the wheel and everything's just spiraling out of control into chaos and somebody better wake God up? Well, it doesn't hurt to keep waiting for God to make it clear to us. Maybe He will, maybe He won't. But while you're waiting for answers, here's what you should do. Instead of focusing on finding answers, if, you, if you've reached the end of the list, if it's not because of a sin, if it's not because of this or that, just focus on who God is instead of focusing on what your question is. Focus on the fact that God is always good that He is always sovereign, that He is all-powerful, that He is all-wise, that He is all-present, that He is perfectly just in all of His ways, regardless of what's happening in the world, regardless of what's happening in the world. 
He's faithful to all of his plans, all of his purposes, all of his people. He's faithful. We need to remember those things and bring those things to mind regularly when we're being afflicted or when we're suffering or when it looks and feels like God is not doing something that we would think that he would. Focus not only on who God is, but on what God has promised. And no, God never once, not even once, never even implies that we won't suffer in this life. He's never promised comfort. He's never promised health. He's never promised wealth. Those are terrible, terrible idols, by the way. Burn those idols to the ground. Dig a hole and and bury them as deep as you can. Cast them aside. What God has promised is that His grace is always sufficient in our weakness. He's promised that nobody can pry us from His sovereign hand. He's promised that He'll be with us and that He will not forsake us even until the very end. Those are things that God has promised. Those are things we can hold God to. Those are things that God will always, always, always be faithful to. So focus on who God is. Focus on what He's promised. And third, put your hope in Him. Don't put it anywhere else. Put your hope in God and keep praying to Him. That's, that's the surest indication that somebody has lost hope in God. It's when they stop praying to God. So don't stop praying to Him. That's exactly what the psalmist does as he wraps up this psalm. Verses 23-26. to 26. He writes, Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Friends, this psalm is a reminder that we don't pray to God to change his mind. We don't even pray to God to change our circumstances, first and foremost. Sometimes he waits until we pray and, and, and then he'll, he'll act, but sometimes, often perhaps, he doesn't. Rather, the, the primary reason, the number one reason that we pray to God is to bring ourselves into submission alignment with His will. Submissive alignment with His will. And as the psalmist prays, look at what he's reminded of. It's what he concludes the psalm with. You see that word? We, we see this word throughout the psalms. He's reminded of God's loving kindness. His loving kindness. Now, the Hebrew word here, once again, we've seen it over and over throughout the Psalms. The Hebrew word here is chesed. That's God's faithful covenant love toward His people. What this reminds the psalmist and and what it reminds us of is that no matter how bleak, no matter how terrible our circumstances or our afflictions may seem, we are sure that they are not without a divine purpose. That God is doing something, even if we might not completely understand. And that whatever He's doing, whatever our affliction is, whatever's happening in the world, it will not separate us from God's faithful love. Because His love is a covenant love. 
If you want to know if God loves you, the last place you want to look is your life circumstances or the level of comfort that you might be experiencing in any given moment. Rather, the first place to look, if you want to know if God loves you, the first place to look, the only place you need to look is to the cross where Jesus, our Messiah, bore our sin and died in our place. There is no greater love than the love that was demonstrated there, and there is no greater demonstration of that faithful covenant love than Calvary, than the cross. But this is the conclusion that only the Christian can arrive at and can cling to. Speaking of of promises that God is faithful to, He promised to send a Messiah, a Savior who would shed His own blood for the remission and for the forgiveness of sins of all who believe in His Son, but who would also be the scapegoat who would carry our sins away from us, removing the guilt, removing the burden of sin from us. Those were, in the Old Testament, those were the the, uh, benefits and blessings that God gave to all of His people within the assembly. Those on the outside didn't receive those blessings and benefits. And likewise, those who have not savingly believed in Jesus are outside the walls of the assembly. They're outside of God's blessings and provisions. There is no atonement. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from believing in Jesus. And we can cling to that as Christians. But unlike those who have believed in Jesus, God is not only causing all things to work for the good of those who have believed in His Son, but He is not causing all things to work for the good of those who have not believed in His Son. Instead, He has handed them over to their sin, ultimately for their own destruction. But God has made this promise, and He's faithful to it, that all who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. All who believe in Him will be saved. This is how one becomes a recipient of this wonderful covenant, Hesed love. Friends, sometimes there is absolutely just no explanation to be found for why we would suffer for why God would allow us to undergo some type of condition or affliction. Sometimes there is just no explanation, but nothing, not suffering, not affliction, not chaos in the world, not even death, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Proverbs 18.14 says, The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? In other words, we can endure affliction. We can endure sickness and suffering as long as we have hope, as long as our spirit remains steadfast and not broken. But if your greatest hope in life is physical comfort, what are you going to do when there is no physical comfort to be found? And the reality is that for most of us, that day is coming when we will be in complete discomfort, when we lie on our deathbed and we're completely miserable, we're completely feeling afflicted, what are you going to do? What are you going to cling to? What hope will you have to keep you going then? The solution, the answer, is to stop viewing comfort or anything else in this world as our greatest hope in life, but to put all of our hope 
in Christ our Good Shepherd. Whatever we may endure, God, who is all-wise, all-powerful, all-present, has ordained it, and He is using it for our greatest good. Not for comfort. That's not our greatest good. That's actually sometimes the worst thing that we can have. But rather, for our growth in Christ's likeness. As I've said many times before, if we're being afflicted, we must know that if we knew what God knows... And if we loved ourselves as deeply and as greatly as God does, our situation or our affliction wouldn't be any different. We would, in fact, not change it. Even if we could. If we knew what God knows and loved ourselves as much as God loves us, we wouldn't change a thing. God is not asleep at the wheel. And our feelings just simply betray us when we start to wonder If He is. God never sleeps. God is constantly awake. God is constantly aware of what's going on in the world and in our individual lives. But everything that happens is an expression of His sovereign will that He established before the foundation of the world according to the counsel of His sovereign will. Therefore, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. We must hope in God rather than in what we're feeling, what we're seeing, what we're perceiving, what we're understanding in whatever circumstances or affliction we're facing. Having that perspective, this is a biblical perspective, having this perspective changes the way we look at or think about suffering as a whole. It takes us from needing answers, needing an explanation, to remembering that because God is faithful, even death has lost its sting. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, we will endure. We will persevere. Because God in His faithfulness will persevere in upholding us. He will not abandon us. And in the end, we'll be able to say with Paul that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the way that it instructs us for the way that it deals with the reality of, uh, of, of our lives. We thank You that the psalmists don't pull any punches, but that they, real, uh, they, they deal with the real issues that we deal with. And they show us how to think and how to act, and they point us back to You and Your faithfulness. So we pray, O oh Lord, that as, as the world... Uh, seems to be headed toward chaos, that we would be mindful of these truths that Your Word gives us. That You are sovereign over all things. That You are in control of all things. That You do ordain all things that come to pass, all for the purpose of fulfilling Your plans and Your purposes, which are good, and who are we to question them? And so we pray, O Lord, that You would comfort us with these truths the truths of Your sovereignty, the truths of Your all-powerfulness, the truths of Your faithfulness unto Your people. 
Thank You, O Lord, for giving us comfort. And we pray, O Lord, that as we bring these truths to mind, that we would be comforted. That we wouldn't need answers. That all we would need to know is that Christ is Lord and that nothing can separate us from Your love in Him. In His name we pray. Amen.